So I am not a green thumb. I, I don't have uh, the gifts or the abilities to uh, grow, um, I don't know, plants and see that they live. Um, but there are those among us here this morning who, whose thumbs are green, right? I mean, who know what it takes to garden and garden well. This morning, um, gardens and gardening are central to our text. And as I hope we shall see for our lives. Last Sunday, we considered God's special provision for us of life and love. Today, we look at part two of God's special provision for us, focusing upon the history of our purpose and our place. So we return to Genesis chapter two, reading again this morning from verses four through 15. This is God's word to his people. This, the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one who, which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, it is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. We were made to work the garden. That's our intended purpose. On the third day of creation, God made plants bearing seed and trees, bearing fruit, which we find out that the Lord immediately gives to humanity as well as to the animal kingdom for food. Think of it this way. Initially, Adam and Eve are surrounded by baby food. And that's kind of fitting because Adam and Eve came into the world naked, just like the birth of babies. Perhaps as Adam and Eve would further cultivate and form the garden, their cookbook would grow. But at the Genesis, no preparation was needed. Just grab fruit from a tree or a plant and start munching. But when we read Genesis 2.5, it tells us about two specific categories of plant life. Not all types of vegetation, mind you, but these two types that had yet to sprout in the garden. 
For one, it literally says that no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. The Hebrew word for shrub occurs only three other times in the entirety of the Old Testament, and it always refers to wild plants. And the next part of verse 5 says that no herb of the field had yet sprouted, referring to domesticated plants, the kind of plants that I would kill. So along with a river that went out of Eden, God caused water to come up from the ground to bring about more abundant life. The shrubs would not produce herbs, whereas the domesticated plants would, but both required watering and working. They needed a gardener, someone to till or cultivate, to quite literally serve the ground. In Hebrew, the word for ground is Adama, and the word for man is Adam. And certainly you can hear the similarities between the two words. At the end of verse 5, we read that there was no Adam to serve the Adama. Then verse 7 tells us that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Notice then how Adam was made, how we are made to serve the very thing that we are made of. And notice how everything we have considered up to this point sets the background of what unfolds in our world's history. God fashioned Adam and Eve as vice regents of the earth, as princes and princesses, you might say. And as rulers made in the image of God, the supreme ruler over all, humanity was not created to domineer over the creation, but to serve it. What a principle for politicians and professionals and professors and pastors, for people in general to hear. If we are given a position of authority over anything, over anyone, God designed that role for us to be servants. Uh, there's some conviction there for me. And ah, how we should catch the incarnation language in all of this. Matthew 1 verse 23 says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus humbles himself in coming to the earth in order to serve humanity whose flesh he took on. He is a king, yet he rules through serving us. Christ says in Mark 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ, you see, is the second Adam. He is the second gardener sent to serve the garden. This analogy comes more alive to us when we realize how trees and plants are often representative of people. You know, Women, even as Laura was singing this morning, um, how he loves us. When he first heard that song as a young boy, uh, he, he looked at me and said, Dad, I'm not a tree. Um, but, but honestly, Scripture does represent us in agricultural terms. Psalm 1 and verse 3 says, The righteous man is like a tree. 
The wicked are like chaff. Psalm 92 and verse 12, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree and grow like cedar in Lebanon. Psalm 128.3, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. And in John 15.15, 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. You can see other agricultural analogies that Jesus draws in a number of his parables, especially those in Matthew chapter 13, are how in John 4 verse 35, Jesus compares those who need a Savior to being a field ripe for harvest. The church could not exist and grow without Christ being sent to serve the harvest. Such an analogy comes more alive to us when we understand that Jesus tends to the harvest by offering us living water. Because of our first gardener's sin, humanity naturally follows after water that cannot bring forth true life. The Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. But as our second gardener, Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Christ is born of the dust to serve fallen humanity who was fashioned from the dust. And this analogy comes more alive to us when we understand that Isaiah 64 and verse 8 says, God is the potter. We are the clay. In order for there to be clay, you must have both dirt and water. And this draws my mind to John chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Jesus spit on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the blind man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man, the man went and washed and came home seeing. In Jesus' day, not only were the blind unable to see, they were widely relegated to begging with no chance of a life. Yet the second gardener who came to cultivate the garden was sent precisely to serve these blind men and women, blind boys and girls without spiritual sight, beggars with no chance of life on our own. And oh, the analogy comes even more alive to us through the resurrection account of John chapter 20. How ironic that in verse 15, Mary Magdalene supposes that Jesus is what? The gardener. Or maybe it's not ironic at all because Christ is the gardener. Through Christ's 
death and resurrection, he turns our graves into gardens. He gives us new life, victorious, purposeful life once again. He washes us clean and sends us out with renewed purpose. We are made princes and princesses yet again, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. As Paul will say in Romans 8, 17. So whenever we believe in Jesus as our Savior, that Christ is the source of our blessing, we in turn become more of a blessing to those around us, or at least we should. We are made to work the garden patterned after our Savior. Our purpose is no longer just to cultivate the earth. Our purpose is now to cultivate people. My close friend and fellow pastor Joe Thacker recounts a conversation that supposedly took place between two world-renowned economists of their day, Wilhelm Rupke and Ludwin von Mises. As the story goes, von Mises was visiting Rapke at his home in Austria, and Rapke was showing him around his garden. Rapke was telling von Mises about the various things planted and the consistent, committed work involved. Von Mises looked at Rapke, one economist to another, and said, you know, tending to a garden is probably not the most efficient way for you to go about getting your vegetables. It's probably not the best use of your time. It's certainly not the best use of your resources. But Rockley replied, it's an efficient way to grow men. And there's something to that analogy because gardening is like life. It's like raising children. It's like managing a business. It's like serving the mission field. And sometimes it's not going to be easy. Gardens require consistent, committed attention because after the fall, there are weeds and there are worms. After the fall, there are bugs and animals and pollution. But perhaps in our garden analogy, we are to understand that the thorns and thistles that we find mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 refer primarily to people. There's going to be disappointments and difficulties in our dealings with people. There's going to be headache and heartache that come from dealing with people. There's going to be people who will at times oppose us and persecute us. That is life outside Eden's garden. And that analogy comes even more alive to us in the spiritual cultivation of our lives, the lives of our family, and the lives of others. Sometimes outside Eden's garden, we will feel spiritually dry, won't we? But as Christ followers, let us commit to consistently work toward cultivating our individual gardens. Let us pray. 
Let us spend time in the Word of God. Let us listen to Christ-exalting music. Let us take meditative walks. Let us be still in the presence of God. Let us yield to the Spirit. Let us commit to worshiping alongside other believers. Let us humbly receive correction when we need to hear it. As Christ's followers, let us commit to consistently work toward cultivating the gardens of our homes. Dustin Benz observes, there is a 0.296% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There is a 0.0086% chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. Ah, yet there is a 100% chance that your child will stand before Jesus. What are we teaching our children? Furthermore, as Christ's followers, let us commit to consistently work toward cultivating the garden in our sphere of influence, our vocational spheres, our recreational spheres, our church spheres, and so on. Give as t'was given to you in need. Love as the master loves you. Be to the helpless a helper indeed. Unto your mission be true. Make me a blessing. Make me a blessing. Out of my life may Jesus shine. Church, we must continue to work the garden in our Christ-given renewed purpose. We work the garden patterned after Jesus himself. And we do that, and when we do that, until the return of Christ, and until the garden that was originally made for us, because you see, that's our intended place. God made the original garden in Eden for man's special provision. And delight. Moses says in verse 8 that God had planted a garden in the eastern region of Eden. This would have been a place that his Jewish audience recognized somewhere across the great Arabian desert toward the area that we know as the valley of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Now these two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they still maintained their names. Two of the rivers, the Pishon and the Gihon, likely saw their names change over time. Either that or those two rivers were merged into the other during the Great Flood. Beyond these waters flowing through the garden, verse 12 says that it was a resource-rich land adorned with precious metals and jewels. This habitat that God prepared for the first man was bountiful. It was beautiful. It was a real place. It was an idyllic place. It was a perfect place where the first man could commune daily and directly with God himself. James Montgomery Boyce says we must take special note of the garden. 
To those who live in lush, well-watered lands, the existence of a garden may not seem all that remarkable. But Genesis was originally written not to those who live in lush climates, but to people who lived in extremely arid or desert countries, and for whom a garden was therefore an exquisite delight, virtually a symbol of heaven. Yet although God made a beautiful, abundant, useful garden, a garden symbolic of heaven itself, what did man do to it? He polluted it, right? John Phillips shares a story about having some meetings in a large northern city where his host was a police officer. One particular day, as they were driving past some newly high-built rise apartments, the a police officer told Phillips how the apartments had sadly turned into slums. The people living there had vandalized the walls. They had ripped out fixtures to sell them for drugs. They had turned the living environment into a danger zone. You see, the homes had been built beautifully, but the hearts of those dwelling in them were corrupt. In this, we can find a common societal misnomer. There is a theory, if we just change each person's environment, we can change each person. Just change the environment, and you change the person. Not so. The human race began its history in the most perfect, idyllic environment this planet has ever known. The environmental theory has already been tested under the most favorable circumstances imaginable, but it fails. We chose to make a slum of it. We chose to let the garden become overgrown with weeds. So it's certainly not an environment our place. It's not a political platform that's going to bring about the change that we need. Do not set your hope there. I know this is an election year, and I know there's going to be a lot of talk about this, that, or the other, but that's not what saves man. Transformational change is only possible in one way. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Set your hope there. E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary of India, once said, the early Christians did not say with dismay, look what the world has come to, which is what we say as a result of Adam's sin. Rather, they say in delight, look what has come to our world. In other words, early Christians saw not merely the ruin that Adam's sin caused, but they saw a way to reconstruction through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And so when the trumpet shall sound and Christ returns to usher in the new heavens, the new earth, we shall be made like him, transformed to sin no more, and in a restored garden. Notice then, the place does not save us. Jesus saves us for the place. It is a place 
with living streams of water. It is a place of trees and plants and flowers. It is a place with precious stones and jewels. It is a place of fish and birds and animals. It is a place of holy relationships. And most of all, it is a place where we will commune directly and daily again with God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Christian, you shall forever be in glory with the incarnate, resurrected King who served you by taking up the cross of Calvary. And, and by the way, who shall serve you still? In Luke 12, 37, Jesus says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve will have them recline at a table and will come and wait on them. Do you hear the significance of that? Yeah. Even in the new earth, the new Eden, Jesus serves you. Wow. What a Savior, right? What a Lord. A Lord who came to serve. A Lord who will always serve his bride. That seems like a very special provision, if you ask me. Very special provision indeed. So I am left to ask, if you have not set your faith and your hope in Jesus... Why would you not do that today? It's nothing you can do. It's nothing you can bring. It's no place you can create. It's no argument you can make. There is one way. There is one way. His name is Jesus. <laughs> that we would set our hope, our faith in Him. Pray with me. Christ, where there are hearts that are misgiven, where there are hearts that would pray to anyone other than our great king, where there are hearts that would place their confidence anywhere other than Christ, 
Spirit of God, move. Spirit of God, enlighten, convict, bring clarity to hearts and minds who need Jesus. And oh, in this garden that we continue to cultivate and work, where there are thorns and thistles, where there is brokenness and hurt, oh, do not let us lose heart. Let us work until our King comes again. And what a glorious thought that he will gird himself and he will serve his bride. Let us get a glimpse of Jesus today, I pray. In his name, amen.